0: This morning, we will be continuing in our sermon series through the book of James, starting in chapter 2. And again, just like last week, those things in front of you, they're Bibles. You can pull them out, you can look at them, you can bring your Bible from home uh, and follow along. Words will be up on the screen as well, but you are more than welcome to follow along there. As we continue through uh, this letter this, this summer, it's important to remember why we are spending as much time as we are in it. James, he was compassion he wasn't compassionate, he was passionate about the church. Absolutely loved the church. And he, he believed that it had gotten a, a little off track. So he took time to invite followers of Christ to examine their priorities, to, to check in on whether or not their actions actually matched what they claimed to believe. That's why he, he wrote this. The, the church was growing. The church was growing beyond the walls of Jerusalem, and that's where he was. And, and as things were changing, he wanted to make sure that the main thing remained the main thing. Summer is a great time to hit reset, reset and, and James invites us to do that, to hit reset. To put it bluntly, to look at how we live how, how we live as a church, as individuals, and examine how our faith is clearly evident in the way in which we live. The first part of the letter, as we looked at the last couple weeks, focuses on, on persevering through trials and becoming mature or, as we talked about last week, fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ as we journey through those trials. As he starts, there's there's almost that... This tone that implies that people in the church, they were compromising their convictions because of what was happening in the world around them. Now, he doesn't tell them to ignore the culture, or does he say you're not a part of the culture, but but he also doesn't tell them to just kind of embrace it, to just kind of go with the flow and, and take it all in. Instead, he encourages them to pay attention to what was happening and to be intentional with their response. He gives them plenty of advice that is just as applicable today as it was then. Especially right here at the end of chapter 1. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. In other words, be patient, be humble, pay attention. Don't act out of your anger and let God's word guide you as you respond to what you see. Then, starting in chapter 2, we read this. My brothers and sisters, believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. If you really keep it, you're doing it right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I feel pretty fortunate to have a a, a decent relationship with my my sister. But we weren't weren't always necessarily close with one another. She was the know-it-all big sister. Anybody else have a know-it-all big sister? Yeah, thank you. Anyone else want to admit that they're an annoying little brother? She was the know-it-all big sister. I was the annoying little brother. That's just how it is. And then something changed when she went off to college and and we stayed, we got close together as she went away. And and to this day, we still talk all the time. Our our rooms at our parents' house, they, they shared a wall. So from time to time as teenagers, one of us would, of course, bang on the wall out of frustration at something that the other was doing. But the wall wasn't the only thing we shared. There were toys, pets, teachers, holidays, food, the bathroom. All the things that siblings who grow up with one another typically share. I got my license when I turned 16. The day I, I turned 16, which, which drove her nuts. And, and she complained that I got to drive the family van. And she was older. She didn't get to drive the family van. I got to drive it all the time, and she complained. And I'd yell back, it's because I actually started working when I was 15. So I had to have a car so I could get to work while she was just studying because she got straight A's, because that's what perfect big sisters do. (laughs) When we would whine to our parents about something being unfair, my mom would come back with a sarcastic, well, that's just because I love your sister more. Or, that's because your brother is really our favorite. It wasn't always enough to calm us down completely, but it would get our attention. We knew that she was being sarcastic. We knew that she was was joking. And it often helped us to move forward with whatever it was that was causing the tension between us. When James moves from writing that Christians should be quick to listen and slow to speak, slow to become angry, to to talking about favoritism, he uses a real-life example that would have gotten the attention of those who were in church. It would have made them kind of perk up and say, Oh, we need to listen. He says, Suppose two people come to church on a Sunday morning. One is dressed well, the other is dressed in rags. If you prioritize one person over the other, you're casting judgment. You're dishonoring the people who God loves. You're ignoring Scripture. His focus throughout the entire letter is is Christians acting in a way that is consistent with their faith. And he's looking at the folks in the church and he's saying, you got these two groups of people showing up at church on Sunday. Are you loving them both? Are you, are you loving them both in the same way? Are you showing favoritism or not? A couple of weeks ago, Faith and I were, were talking about a, a renewed focus for our, our, our student ministries coming in the fall. Um, we're we're going to be launching some small group ministries here uh, at, with our, our students. And it's still in the beginning stages, but Faith sent me a, a list of 10 names, Calvin, Calvin, a list of ten names of of high school guys to kind of pour into and to to hang out with in the coming year. And if you want to join me, it will be a lot of fun, right, Calvin? It'll be a lot of fun. Calvin will be there if you, if you didn't know. If you want to join me with the high school guys, let let me know. We're gonna we're gonna have all kinds of fun. But the list it reminded me of some of my earliest years in ministry. I, I did student ministries for a little over a decade, and uh, it was it was the second church I would serve. I was serving, and we had a, a rather large youth group. During the summer, my, my buddy John, he pulled out a, white, a whiteboard to start the season, to start the summer season. And in, in one color, he wrote all of the names of the students that were in the group. And it was a big group, so there was like 80 or 90 kids, 80 or 90 kids in the group. And he wrote them all down on the whiteboard. And then he wrote the, the 12 to 15 leaders, both paid staff and volunteers, in a different color. And he said, hey... This summer, we're going to go and we're going to hang out with our kids. We're going to hang out with them. Go and do this. And every time you meet with them, draw a line from your name to the student's name that you're meeting with. So 12 to 15 adult leaders, 80, 90 high school kids. The middle of the summer, we got together and we said, well, we've been drawing lines. We've been been doing what we're supposed to do. And, And what's happened? Well, we were meeting with the same 20 kids. The 12 to 15 leaders were meeting with the same 20 kids in the youth group. There were 60 to 70 who had not been met yet in five, six weeks, five or six weeks. Consciously or subconsciously, we had favorites. We, we did whether it was intentional or not. And we had favorites, and because we had favorites, students were being missed. Students were being missed. Now, I wish I could say that favoritism or showing partiality is an issue that's a thing of a past or or something that's just confined to student ministry or to the church that James was writing to. But it's not. It's not. He reminds us that an important part of living out our faith, of acting on what we believe, is learning to set aside playing favorites in order to love everyone within our community. At the start of chapter two, he, he gives he gives us three reminders. It starts with with the reminder that his readers, the, the people that he's writing to, remember. His letter was going to all Christians, and he, he, he refers out to them as brothers and sisters. It's a term he uses often in his writing, and, and elsewhere in the New Testament, it's used as a term of endearment, a, a, a term to describe a, a community of people. It could be blood-related. It could be cousins. Sometimes it's, it's cousins. Sometimes it's, it's a church community. Sometimes it's a nuclear family. For James... This is where it all begins. It all begins with the church, brothers and sisters, that that, that tight knit community. It didn't matter if someone was rich or poor, or young or old, male or female, if they had belonged to the church for a long time or if they were brand new. It didn't matter. If that person belonged to the fellowship, they had a place. They belonged. Now, starting this way was important for James for a couple of reasons. But chief among them is the reality that as the early church grew, new people were showing up at worship services. And they were watching the way that the church was interacting with one another. New people were coming in and they were saying, are they actually practicing what they're hearing? Are they actually acting out on what they claim to believe—it's not all that different from, from the church today when visitors show up. Are—are are any of you um, familiar with the, the old folk worship song? They will know we are Christians by our love. Anybody know the year it was written? We're getting—we're getting 66. Was written in 66. All right, let's see if we got some church historians. What happened? I'm looking to you, Pastor Dale. What happened from 1962 to 65? This is a hard one. The Second Vatican Council. It's, it's, it's not reformed, so it doesn't, you don't have to really know that. The Second Vatican Council. Vatican II was held by the Catholic Church in an attempt to respond to what was happening out, outside the church, to respond to what was happening in culture, to say, how can we be relevant in this incredibly changed world? How can we express what we believe in a way that people will actually understand? That's why... Vatican II was held. And so they met for three years, and this, this, this priest got together, and he said, well, we were talking about all this, this stuff, about how we can communicate our theology and what we, what we believe. Um, aren't we just called to kind of do what Jesus said to do? To, to love people? And so he wrote this song that I grew up singing, that I grew up singing in, in a Presbyterian church, at family camp, and those sorts of things. It comes from the Catholic church. It comes from the, the Catholic church. When James writes brothers and sisters, or Adolfoi, one word, family, in Greek, it's as if he's penning the same words that start the song. We are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord. We're not going to sing it, don't worry. I know I sang in the choir, but not so. We are called to be one as a church. In one word, James is saying, siblings, brothers, sisters, listen up. Pay attention. People are watching how we treat each other. Pay attention. Earlier I mentioned that we're we're launching some small group Initiatives with our, our student ministries in the fall, um, but we're also hoping to start something new here on Sunday mornings. Last month at our session meeting, our elders talked about restarting something that we used to do every Sunday before COVID, uh, called the friendship pads. Passing the friendship pads. How many of you remember passing the friendship pads? How many of you were like, "Yeah, that was awesome. We got to see who was in church." How many of you are introverts and hated them? It's okay. You wouldn't raise your hand if you're an introvert, but I'm. I'm I'm an introvert, so I can I can say that about myself. If you're not familiar with the practice, it involved passing a pad of paper down the pew, writing your name on it, checking the box to say whether you're new, whether it's your first time, your second time, whether you're a member, kind of kind of looking at it all and saying, all right, the, this person sitting next to me today, Darv is here. He's sitting next to me. I saw his name on a pad, so I know he's here. We we would pass him down. We would kind of kind of look at them. The the goal. The goal was to be intentional with connecting with those who we're worshiping with, with those who are, are at church. It's a, it's a great, great intention. But friendship pads alone aren't going to help us connect with one another. And there's, there's all kinds of, of hurdles to them. What happens if I can't read Haley's handwriting? We, we, we don't know her name. What happens what, what happens if Ted forgets to sign in one day? What, what, what happens? And so what we're going to do, what we're going to launch this, this fall is a hospitality ministry. We're going to have a, a welcome table out on the courtyard. And, and our ushers and greeters and staff are going to say, Hey, when you arrive at church, go say hi to Cheryl. She's at the welcome table. And Cheryl's going to look down and she's going to say, Hey, Bob, hey, it's good to see you. And not just check a box. How are you doing? How are you doing? Hey, you know, we've got this thing going on at church. Hey, uh, I, I heard this is going on in your life. How, how can I help you? Hey, uh, we've, we've got this phone number for you. Is it right? Is it the right way to connect with you? Or is it the wrong way? To actually be proactive with connecting with one another. And if you want to be a part of that hospitality team, you can, you can talk to me, you can talk to Faith, you can talk to Jerry, our, our head usher, you can talk to Tom. We, we love to be intentional as a church with connecting with one another to make sure that everybody is being greeted. That if I were to sit down and write all your names on a whiteboard, that we wouldn't have anybody who hasn't received a hello in the last month. What James has in mind with his first words is it's not a passive welcome. It's, It's not a passive welcome. It's an active, brothers and sisters, are we listening? He's painting a picture of welcoming one another into worship in a way that assures each and every person is noticed when they arrive. Next, James reminds his readers of the object of their faith. He writes, brothers and sisters, family, believers in our glorious Lord, Jesus Christ. It starts and it ends with Jesus. It's both his James's confession and it's his affirmation. Jesus, his his brother, remember James's half brother, is his Lord. When James tells the story of of the two people who arrive at church, of the one who's well-dressed and the one who comes in, in, in rags, he, he uses the common word for synagogue of the day to, to talk about their meeting. So he's, he's talking about a worship service. When, when you arrive to synagogue, when you arrive to, to our worship gathering, it was a, a religious word and isn't quite as common as what's used elsewhere in the New Testament. In, in most of Paul's writing and in Luke's account in Acts, the more common word ecclesia is used to talk about the church. At the time, most people would have seen these two words kind of as a a different word. You'd have ecclesia, ecclesia, where where we get ecclesiology, the study of the church. You'd have ecclesia, and ecclesia would be talking about a a secular gathering or movement of sorts. So Paul is very intentional And using that language, he's saying, you know what? Jesus is Lord in that place. And here, James is doing the same thing on the other end of the spectrum. He's saying, Jesus is Lord in the religious space as well. So you you put those two together, and Jesus is is Lord in both the secular and, and the religious. That is what James is claiming here. He's doubling down on what Paul and Luke write and reminding readers that, that Jesus is Lord over what we consider religious, what was happening in Jerusalem, where He was, as well as Lord over everything else. And the way that Christians treat one another in a worship setting and in a religious gathering, the way that Christians treat one another when we gather for worship is supposed to be different. It's supposed to be different. But we're called to love one another to not show partiality. And the reason we're called to do that is because Jesus is Lord. So we move from favoritism toward a life of faith because of who we are, brothers and sisters, because of, of, of who we follow, Jesus is Lord. And because of what we have, faith. In the NIV translation, which we read this morning, um, we, we translate this as, as believers. Believers. For James, having faith, being the people who believe, is incompatible with favoritism. They don't work together. Being a people who believe and showing favoritism are incompatible in James's mind. Especially when it, when it comes to treating people With worldly means, those with status, those with power, differently from those who don't have worldly means. Because we believe, we are called to a different standard. Now the Gospel of John uses the word that James uses here for believers nearly 100 times. Starting with the well-known John 3.16 passage, For God so loved the that he gave his one and only for whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. It's interesting. If we look at the gospel of John, unlike here in James where, where believers is a noun, the ones who believe every time that John uses, believe it is a verb. It, it is a verb, an action word, something you do. The emphasis, emphasis is on the activity of placing one's trust and belief in Jesus. Now, Faith is going to talk a little bit more about this this next week, so I'm not going to hijack her sermon, but I want to talk about it just for one minute. How many of you um, think that you're really, really, really good with the English language? Come on, you can be bold. How many think you have a great grasp on, on sentence structure in the English language? We're going to play a game. How many of you played Mad Libs as a kid? If you played Mad Libs as a kid, you can play this game. Or if you're an English major, I'll say a a short sentence and you respond with the verb. I know I've got an editor behind me, I'm in trouble. I ride my bike. What's the verb? I eat food. What's the verb? He played the game. What's the verb? You sang the song. Sang. All right. If you passed, I know it's summertime. It's okay. It's summertime. We can, we can do some, some schoolwork. Now let's do the object and the subject of the same sentences. Same sentences. I ride my bike. What's the object? What's the subject? I. I eat food. What's the object? What's the subject? He played the game. What's the object? What's the subject? You sang the song. What's the subject? Ah, you're paying attention. What's the object? Song. I believe in Jesus. What's the verb? What's the object? Who's the subject? I. Whether we're talking about the gospel of John and the act of believing or what James writes when we're labeled as the ones who believe. Having faith in Jesus is something we do. It's not passive. It's not passive. It is something that we do. It is a verb Having faith is a verb. And James reminds us that it should be evident in the way in which we live. And that starts with how we live together as brothers and sisters in the church. The first scripture passage we read this morning told the story of Abram being called out. Of Abram being sent. Being sent to the nations where where he is called to Be a blessing to others. He's not told that by God that God's going to make him great for his own benefit. He says, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless your family so that you can bless others. I'll give you one guess what bless is there in our sentence structure. A verb. It's doing something. It's doing something. Many years later, the law was written and it Double down on this idea of blessing others and said you should love God, a verb, and love neighbor. Then, again years later, Jesus came and said, you've gotten off track. Get back to loving your neighbors. Get back to blessing others. In some ways, what James is teaching here isn't anything new. He was just encouraging the early church to be active in living out their faith in a tangible and noticeable way, which meant that they couldn't show favoritism. As we move forward here at WPC, may we be a church that takes this invitation to hit reset, to actually live out our faith seriously. May we live it out in a way it's noticeable where people say, hey, you know what, that, that church, Westminster, they sure do love people well. And here's how we know. Let's pray. Loving God, we, we thank you for the reminder that faith requires action. May we be a church that goes out of our way to be impartial when it comes to being a hospitable community. We pray these things in your name. Amen.